Today's scripture is the Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 through 15. Please stand. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you've put, it, uh, put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was, was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, the boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows I do. And what I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is God's word. Last week, we commemorated D-Day, the battle that turned the tide of World War II. We won this hard-fought battle because thousands of soldiers were willing to sacrifice their lives for this cause. The outcome of the battle helped determine the outcome of the war. And the outcome of the war meant the difference between the world that we live in today or a world controlled by the architects of the Holocaust. There's another war raging with even higher stakes. It's the war over the gospel. It's raged for centuries and many have lost their lives. They believed it was worth the price they paid because the outcome would mean more than life or death for billions. The war over the gospel was fought by Jesus, the disciples, the early church fathers, the reformers, and many more. And it continues today, and it calls us to action. Let's pray. 
Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask now that your spirit would use that word as a sword to speak deeply into each of our lives, precisely where we are on our journeys. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul fought the gospel and gospel wars in many of his letters, 2 Corinthians included. So we can learn from him how we should fight this battle. We're going to see four things that he, we need to love others, know who our opponent is, correct counterfeit gospels, and then defend ourselves. See, there has to be a good reason for a nation to enter a war. Pearl Harbor was our good reason for entering World War II. And there has to be a good reason for us to enter into the war over the gospel. And Paul gives us that reason in this passage. We should engage in this fight because we love others. If we want the best for them, we want them to hear the true gospel and not be misled. And we see this passion in Paul himself and his purity, his desire for the purity of the Corinthian church and his willingness to do anything necessary so that they would embrace the gospel. We read in verses 1 and 2. I wish you'd bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And as Eric brought out last week, Paul wasn't out to impress anyone. The only thing that mattered to him was God's commendation. However, since the credibility of the gospel he preached was dependent upon his trustworthiness, he'd have to boast. See, if the Corinthians believed his opponents, they would follow a false gospel. If they trusted him, they would embrace the true gospel. And so since he was being undermined by the false teachers who trumpeted their accolades and tarnished Paul's reputation, Paul was driven to do that which was most repugnant to him, to boast. He was forced to boast about himself because of the circumstances. He was up against a group of men who commended themselves and contrasted themselves with Paul in an attempt to win over the Corinthians. In effect, Paul responded, all right, I'll play your game for a moment. I'm sorry I have to do it as it's foolishness and not at all the way I like to conduct myself. He risked being seen as a fool for their sakes. And this is just one of many of the sacrifices that Paul gave because of his love for the Corinthians. And if this love produced a, a divine jealousy, as we see in this verse, he wanted them to have deep, intimate relationship with Christ, to be devoted to Christ, and to experience all that God had for them. He likened himself to a parent marrying off his daughter to Christ, the perfect husband who would love and cherish, lead and serve. We can picture every person who believes in Jesus Christ 
in a marriage with Jesus. And that marriage takes place when someone receives the gospel. When someone says, I take you, Jesus, to be my Savior. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will fight for the gospel in the church. If we love those outside the church, we'll risk looking foolish. As Paul said, he preached Christ crucified, stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and is the wisdom of God. We face similar negative attitudes today. The exclusivity of Christ as the only way to God is a stumbling block to the religious people. A God-man dying for our sins, rising from the dead, is seen as a myth and foolishness to the irreligious. If we're concerned about our image, we're going to keep the gospel in the closet. But we will risk looking foolish if our, we are driven by the same love that Paul had for others. As expressed in Romans 1.16 when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and to the Greek. If we love others, we want them to have this salvation. And we might risk everything for that to happen. So while we might naturally view those who label Christians and marginalized believers, we might see them as enemies, they're not enemies, and we shouldn't treat them as enemies. The true opponent is the one who blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. The one Jesus called the father of lies, and the one Paul references in verse 3. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from its sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul points to the serpent, Satan, as the true opponent. And he cited the story of original sin because he saw the same dynamic at work in Corinth. He saw the same dynamic in the churches he served. We see the same dynamic today. Satan's lie that captured Eve is the same that captured Corinth and it's captured our culture. We need to understand that. Essentially, it's the attitude, we don't need God to know good or evil. We can, use, we can usurp God's throne of determining right and wrong. We can find our own way, apart from God, to thrive. God is not the source of truth. We are. That's the lie that was given in the garden and persists today. And it was that attitude, that type of thinking that says, we can have our own gospel. We don't need to depend on the one in Scripture. 
we can create our own one we would prefer, think is better. See, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Unaware of what she was doing, she spurned the love and goodness of God when she fell for Satan's lie. The same lies prevalent in Corinth. The true gospel proclaimed the love and goodness of God, offered life into eternity. But instead, they were falling for the lie, falling for those who were bearing false gospel that would leave them spiritually dead. So this is why Paul unmasked the real source behind the false teachers in verses 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan is cunning. His minions don't cry out, come, listen to a false gospel. He disguises the false gospels, playing on what attracts us while denying the hard realities that we're sinners, that God is just, and we can't save ourselves. Now, Paul's commentary on these false teachers sounds very harsh. It had to be. The Corinthians needed a wake-up call or they would follow a false gospel to a dead end. Satan has tried to thwart the gospel at every turn. In Jesus' wilderness temptations, he attempted to divert Jesus from the path to the cross. He tempted Jesus through Peter to avoid the cross. He sought to silence Jesus by convincing Judas to betray him. And then once Jesus had accomplished everything that was necessary for the gospel, dying on the cross, rising again, Satan tried to mute the message by intimidating the disciples. And then he infiltrated the early churches with false gospels, just like in Corinth. It's a tactic he uses today. We can't fall into that trap we must be able to spot and correct false gospels. Verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, Paul was warning the Corinthians of three counterfeits. Each is related to the gospel. A different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. A different Jesus was being proclaimed by the false teachers. That's just as true today. A different Jesus is often substituted for the one of the scripture. Pastor Bob Deffenball conveyed one of the greatest questions of our day is, who is Jesus? 
many believe in Jesus, but we have to ask the question, which Jesus? The Jesus of the New Testament is virgin-born. He fulfills the Old Testament prophecies pertaining to the Messiah. The Jesus of the New Testament is truly God and truly man. He literally died and rose from the dead, and he's literally returning again to possess his kingdom and his enemies. That's the biblical Jesus. There are many portrayals of Jesus that are not the real Jesus. We're told, for example, that there's the Jesus of love and acceptance and tolerance who accepts all men as they are without judgment, without condemnation. Then there's the Jesus who's seen as a great teacher, but one of many great teachers. The Jesus who died to show God's love and how much God loved us, but not one who took our sins upon himself. And then there's many more who believe in the Jesus the way I would like to think of him. We can make up our own idea of Jesus. These are not the Jesus that Paul preached. They are not the Jesus of the Gospels. The Corinthians also received a different spirit. I believe this spirit was the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. We get a sense of this from 2 Corinthians 5, 6 when Paul is talking about his ministry being that of the new covenant that reaches into the heart. And he says, it's not of the letter, but it's of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Whereas the gospel Paul preached came from the Holy Spirit, spoke into our hearts, brought freedom and gave life, the legalistic counterfeit only touches the flesh and places heavy burdens on people and leads to death. And they received a different gospel. Today, many people receive all sorts of different gospels, different religions even, and they believe that as long as one is sincere, then God's going to accept them. That's not what Scripture says. As Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, for even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. If you're as sincere as angels are, but you're preaching a different gospel, Paul calls anathema upon you. The issue is not sincerity, it's truth. No matter how sincerely I believe that I could get to the edge of the Grand Canyon and leap over it, if I trust in my efforts, I am going to leap right to the bottom of that canyon. On the other hand, no matter how fragile my faith would be in a helicopter, how scared I might be to get into it, if I get into it, it will take me to the other side. The false teachers spread the lie that they could get to God through their efforts. Paul said, ride the work of Christ who died for your sins and rose again. Any gospel that leaves out sin, God's judgment, or implies that we can save ourselves is counterfeit. 
Any gospel that adds anything to the finished work of Christ is a different gospel. Any gospel that does not lead us to believe that we need a Savior and fails to point us to Jesus as that Savior, it's a false gospel. Any gospel that does not include a belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus is a lie from the father of lies. We need to be able to spot these and correct them. An effective way that Satan often uses to discredit the gospel is to discredit those who preach it. This is his ploy, and he tempted it to do this in Corinth through the false teacher's criticisms of Paul. That's why it was necessary for Paul to defend himself, as we see in verses 5 through 12. And he responds to two charges in these passages. Charge that he was not as skilled a speaker as they, and the charge that his message was worthless because they didn't pay him for it. So verses 5 and 6, he defends himself against the first charge when he writes, Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles, the false teachers, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain to you in all things. Paul conceded that he wasn't as good a speaker as they, but he surpassed them in knowledge and in truth. And it was obvious, and that's what matters about a teacher, not how eloquent, but how much truth they have. He defended himself against the second charge in verses 7 through 12 when he wrote, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? You know, in the culture of Paul's day, a speaker's worth was reflected in the amount of money he was paid for his teaching. Paul's refusal to take money from the Corinthians was used against him. In their eyes, he was not worthy of being heard because he didn't seem to be worthy of being paid. So Paul turns that criticism on its head in verse 9. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers came from Macedonia. They supplied my needs. And so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. See, Paul was worthy of financial support. Another church was supporting him. His motives for not taking money from the Corinthians was selfless and pure, a reflection of his love for them. He didn't want to burden them. And in contrast to the opponents, he wasn't looking for a payday to line his pockets. His refusal to accept their money was an act of love toward them. Christians are subject to mountains of criticism. We need to defend ourselves because the credibility of our message is linked to our credibility as Christians. Criticism usually comes in one of three ways. It's directed at our activities 
or attitudes that seem to be contrary to God's word and character. These are sins of Christendom, but not necessarily Christians. The religious wars, the racism. When these kinds of charges are against us, we need to point out that those attitudes, those actions are the exact opposite of who Jesus is. And that Jesus would make the same criticisms. The second is when the criticism malign our motives, misunderstand our motives. And that's happening over and over again uh, when we take stands against our current culture. We need to explain how our, our words and our actions flow from a love for God and a love for others. That we believe that people thrive when they follow God. And that's all we're doing is presenting the way of God. And then there are criticisms that are very justified because we Christians have not lived out the life as we should. When that happens, we need to admit our failures, confess our sins, and ask for their forgiveness. And then point them to Jesus, not we who are, are faulty images of Christ. And show them his love. And his love is so great that he sacrificed his life for us and our sin and them and theirs. You know, the He Gets Us campaign that we're a part of did months of research. And they discovered that while most unchurched people have negative views of Christianity and of Christians, they actually have positive views of Christ. And so I believe that whenever possible, we need to show that Jesus is the source of our gospel and not ourselves. So I realized the importance of this when I had a conversation with a VISTA volunteer supervisor. When she heard I was ending my service early to pursue Christian education, she encouraged me to be a social service pastor and certainly not a missionary who sought to convert others. I let her know that I believed everyone needed to hear about Christ. And then I added, we Christians must sound narrow-minded when we say that Jesus is the only way. She agreed. Then I explained to her that we believe this because Jesus said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. After an awkward silence, I asked, do you know why Jesus said this? She didn't. And then she asked, why did he say it? And then I was able to explain the gospel. He's the only one 
who has taken our sins and made the way for us to have God's grace. And she listened. Let's join Paul who wrote, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for servants like Paul who've gone before us, who become a model and teach us. Lord, we, just give us wisdom, but certainly give us the purity of the gospel so that when we do share it, it's what you would have us to say. It's the gospel of Paul. It's the gospel of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.